Our reading today is from Esther chapter 9, and I realized as I was glancing at it that I didn't really have a lot of time to do any translation work myself, so it's really just the ASV with a couple of minor changes, but there is a, um, you'll see that it speaks of being hanged on a tree, that should say hung on a tree, hanged specifically means to hang from the neck, which is not what it is actually referring to, it is not a, a gallows, it is probably something like being skewered on a tree or possibly being crucified on a tree. So Esther chapter 9, now in the 12th month, which is the month Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's commandment and his decree drew near to be put in execution, on the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have rule over them, whereas it was turned to the contrary that the Jews had rule over them that hated them, the Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus to lay hand on such as sought their hurt. And no man could withstand them, for the fear of them was fallen upon all the peoples. And all the princes of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and they that did the king's business helped the Jews, because the fear of Mordecai was fallen upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame went forth throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai waxed greater and greater. And the Jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, and with slaughter and destruction, and did what they would unto them that hated them. And in the citadel of Shushan, the Jews slew and destroyed five hundred men. And Parthah... I knew I was going to get in trouble here. Parshandatha and Dalphon and Alpatha and Poratha and Adalia and Aradatha and Parmashat, Parmashta and Aresai and Aridai and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Jews' enemy, they slew. But on the spoil they laid not their hand. On that day, the number of those that were slain in the citadel of Shushan was brought before the king. And the king said unto Esther the queen, The Jews have slain and destroyed five hundred men in the citadel of Shushan and the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. Or what is thy request further? And it shall be done. Then said Esther, If it please the king... Let it be granted to the Jews that are in Shushan to do tomorrow also according unto this day's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hung upon the tree. And the king commanded it so to be done, and a decree was given out in Shushan, and they hung Haman's ten sons. And the Jews that were in Shushan gathered themselves together on the fourteenth day also of the month Adar, and slew three hundred men in Shushan, but on the spoil they laid not their hand. And the other Jews that were in the king's provinces gathered themselves together and stood for their lives and had rest from their enemies and slew of them that hated them 75,000, but on the spoil they laid not their hand. This was done on the 13th day of the month Adar, and on the 14th day of the same they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews that were in Shushan assembled together on the 13th day thereof and on the 14th thereof, and on the 15th day of the same they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore do the Jews of the villages that dwell in the unwalled towns make the fourteenth day of the month Adar a day of gladness and feasting and a good day and of sending portions one to another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters 
unto all the Jews that were in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus, both nigh and far, to enjoin them that they should keep the fourteenth day of the month Adar and the fifteenth day of the same yearly, as the days wherein the Jews had rest from their enemies, and the month which was turned into them from sorrow to gladness and from mourning into a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness and of sending portions one to another and gifts to the poor." And the Jews undertook to do as they had begun, and as Mordecai had written unto them, because Haman the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast Pur, that is, the lot, to consume them, and to destroy them. But when the matter came before the king, he commanded by letters that his wicked device, which he had devised against the Jews, should return upon his own head, and that he and his sons should be hung on the tree." Wherefore they called these days Purim, lots, after the name of Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, and of that which they had seen concerning this matter, and that which had come unto them, the Jews ordained, and took upon them, and upon their seed, and upon all such as joined themselves unto them, so that it should not fail that they would keep these two days according to the writing thereof, and according to the appointed time thereof, every year. And that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the remembrance of them perish from their seed. Then Esther the queen, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew, wrote with all authority to confirm this second letter of Purim. And he sent letters unto all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim in their appointed times, according as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had enjoined them, and as they had ordained for themselves and for their seed in the matter of the fastings and their cry. And the commandment of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the scroll. Let's give thanks to God. Father, thank you for the word that you have given us. Please send your spirit to help me to rightly divide it, plant it within our souls, water it and nurture it so that it may grow and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. In the past year, I have been led to preach on two major topics, as you may recall. The first was worship, and it was actually pretty much exactly a year ago that I started teaching on worship, on communion with God, on the idea that I hope you've all come to think of as at least normal, if not completely familiar and obvious, that the form of our lives is supposed to reflect spiritual patterns, that we are supposed to participate in the invisible realm by what we do visibly, and, in fact, that the telos of the gospel is to impress the patterns of heaven onto earth through the power of the Holy Spirit acting in the church, the body of Christ. We saw some of how this works when we moved on to investigate the callings of God upon our lives, which was the second major kind of branch of teaching that I've done this year. And hopefully you especially remember how we participate in the self-giving nature of God himself as we observe his Sabbath rest on the Lord's day. Well, you and Emma 
won't because you weren't here, but we'll get that sermon online soon. I just have to re-record it because the computer ate it. I mentioned all this not to, so much to remind you where we've been in the past year, although I think that the end of the year is a good time to reflect on those kinds of things, but more because it has a lot to do with the topic that I want to cover today and next week, which is, broadly speaking, the observance of Christmas. Observance maybe is too weak a word because I've actually titled this sermon Liturgical Conquest and Christmas. I'm not just advocating that we celebrate Christmas, but that feast times, festival times like Christmas and also Easter and the Ascension and Thanksgiving and Hallow's Eve, these are one of the chief ways by which the Son of God goes forth to war against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. Satan and his angels are trying to impress their rules, their liturgies, their orders for life to conform the rhythms of our culture to diabolical patterns. They would love us to go back to all the old pagan observances. But because of the lordship of Christ, it is impossible. He will not allow it. He instructs us in his word, in fact, in Galatians 4. But then indeed, not having known God, ye were in servitude to those not by nature gods, this is referring to the time before Christ. And now, in the time of Christ, having known God, and rather being known by God, how turn ye again unto the weak and poor elements to which ye desire to be in servitude anew? Days ye observe, and months and times and years, I am afraid of you, lest in vain I did labor towards you. Similarly, he tells the Colossians, let no one then judge you in eating or in drinking or in respect of a feast or of a new moon or of Sabbaths, because if then did ye die with Christ from the elements of the world, why, as living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? This is referring to the way that the world before Christ was ordered according to a different pattern of life, according to different rules, more strict rules, in fact, rules that involve not eating and drinking. If you go to pretty much any pagan culture, you'll discover they have rules about not eating certain things, not drinking certain things. They have specific calendars which are organized around their gods. These things have passed away, and Paul is horrified that the Galatians and the Colossians might be returning to them. Not only does God instruct us this way, but his spirit has been at work in his church through history to ensure that these instructions are followed. Our entire calendar is now arranged around the Lord Jesus. The holy days of his church are the holidays of our culture. There's as much chance of the world going back to the pagan observances as there is of Christ's word being broken. We have died with Christ to these elemental spirits that once had rule over the nations, and we have been raised into the heavenly places far above them, covenantally, to where Christ himself sits in dominion over those nations and over those gods. And of course, we do not see all things yet put beneath his feet, but the process is clearly begun. The liturgical conquest is well underway. Think about how the rulership of Christ has changed the strategies of the angels, the spiritual forces of darkness that we wrestle with on his behalf. Once upon a time, they commanded open obedience. They set the times and the seasons. 
liturgical festivals and their forms. But do they do this any longer? They certainly do not in the Western world. Even now in the Western world, they do not. Now they have to piggyback off the holidays of the church. Oh, Christmas has become so commercialized, it's not even a, Christmas, a Christian holiday anymore. Right, whose idea do you think that was? Satan knows he cannot get rid of Christmas. As long as Christ as Lord, no, is Lord, no one has the power to reorganize the calendar so that we won't celebrate his birthday. That's just what you do. You celebrate the birthday of your king. The only thing that Satan can try to do then is to subvert that celebration. He can't get rid of it. He isn't in charge of the calendar anymore. But he can twist it. He can turn our hearts to other things on Christmas. He can try to destroy the holiday through sin since he cannot destroy it entirely. Now, because of the weakness of the church in the modern day, his efforts have actually been very successful. His general strategy seems to me to be to convince Christians that we should abandon timekeeping, that we should abandon the idea of a Christian calendar. He wants to convince us that actually it's not a holy thing to have holy days. Satan wants Christians believing that we should not be observing liturgical festivals anymore. But because different Christians have different theological weaknesses and different ways of being foolish, he is very crafty in how he adapts his strategy to different regions of the church, you might say. He has come up with several very effective ways to convince us, to convince different types of Christians, that things like Christmas are actually unholy. In my experience, I think there are three big ones going on right now. The first is aimed at the type of Christian who responds readily to conspiracy theories. And I use that term neutrally, not negatively, because at the rate that most conspiracy theories are coming true, we will run out of them by about 2030. But this kind of Christian is always looking for evidence that history is not what it seems. The narrative is being twisted, these kinds of things. It is not a healthy desire in the long run. He is eager to hear then that Christmas is not actually a festival of truth and peace, but really a satanic thing because, dun dun dun, it has pagan origins. Now you'll hear different stories about how this works. It doesn't really matter what the story is. I guess you've probably heard the one about Christmas being invented by Constantine when he renamed an existing pagan feast to the god Sol Invictus, the invincible sun. He put a Christian name on that pagan celebration. That's just one example of the kind of story that you will hear. The real question to me about this, though, is not actually whether it is true, because when I see Constantine doing that, I think, man, that's pretty based. What I think is, how is this an argument against Christmas? Let's take an analogy. Imagine that we're speaking about conquering space rather than conquering time. If a God-fearing warrior king came to a pagan land called, I don't know, Canaan, he conquered that land for God, he renamed it Israel, gave it a new name, would it make any sense for later believers who were coasting on his hard work to say, oh no, worshipping at Jerusalem is pagan. That's the place where the pagans used to worship. 
Obviously not. But that is apparently why we can't celebrate Christmas on December 25th. Because that's the place, in time, that pagans used to worship, apparently. We kicked them out, but their magic was too strong for Christ to redeem that part of time for himself. It's permanently tainted. Nah, I don't think so. Now, the story about Sol Invictus is not true. As far as I can tell, it's actually the other way around. Sol Invictus was an attempt by pagans to retake Christmas. Which you notice failed, because Christ is Lord of Time. But the point is, it actually doesn't matter. So what if it was pagan? What if another Christian holiday replaced a pagan one at some point? What if one of our Christian holidays was actually originated in, in paganism? So what? It's certainly possible that could happen. Because, after all, lots of pagan festivals fall into the natural rhythms that God has built into time, and lots of our holidays fall into the natural rhythms that God has built into time, because they are natural. Solstices and equinox and sowing and harvest, we all live in the same world, God's world, and God made those rhythms. That's why he set up Israel's calendar using the same rhythms. And that's why he intends to integrate those rhythms into Christ. He isn't abandoning them. He created them. He's redeeming them. So we can celebrate solstices because God made solstices. We can have a harvest festival like Thanksgiving because God created the time of harvest. We can have a midwinter feast because God created midwinter. Whatever midwinter means, God assigned it that meaning, not pagans. And if anything, we should be thinking about how to reform our calendar to more closely match the cycles of creation that God made. Especially, I think, in the Southern Hemisphere, we should be asking ourselves about celebrating these festivals that all originate in the Northern Hemisphere. We have a tension on our hands. We are part of the Universal Church, but the Universal Church came from the Northern Hemisphere and it created festivals that align with the symbolism of the Northern Hemisphere, which is completely the opposite of what we experience. We are inverted. I'm not going to follow the rabbit trail now, but however we go about this, we will do it in the name of Christ because we are Christians. We are functioning as his body, as the means by which he exerts power in the world, not just over space, but over time. Now this brings me to the second way that Satan has convinced Christians to abandon Christmas and other holidays as well. And that is by, he takes those Christians back to the state of being children and slaves. Here's what I mean. In Galatians 4, Paul says, I say, so long time as the heir is a child, he differeth nothing from a slave, though being lord of all, but is under tutors and stewards till the time appointed of the father. So also we, when we were children, under the elements of the world, were in servitude. And when the fullness of time did come, God sent forth his Son, come of woman, come under law, that those under law he may redeem, that the adoption of sons we may receive. And because ye are sons, God did send forth the Spirit of his Son into your heart, saying, Abba, Father, so that thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, also an heir of God through Christ." This is the context of the passage that I read before where Paul is afraid for the Galatians because they observe the days and weeks and months and years of the old calendar, the old world, or at least they want to. 
And he doesn't mean, of course, days like Christmas or months like Advent because those did not yet exist. He is speaking of the calendars of the world before Christ, the world was that, that was under the dominion of the old gods. How can the Galatians go back to that, whether it is the Jewish calendar or another one? How can they put themselves under the liturgical dominion of the old world and the old gods, making themselves children with no more power than slaves who must follow orders, who must be trained, who have not yet come of age, when in fact we have come of age in Christ? Christ has come into the world and we are his body, animated and governed and enlightened by his spirit and trained and instructed and informed by his word to act on his behalf in the world. Now, if you turn to our reading today, you'll notice that, in fact, even in the old world, as the Jews came to maturity, as they were dispersed into the nations of the world and learned to function in an empire in preparation for the empire of Christ and the gospel going out to all the nations, they themselves were permitted to start exercising liturgical dominion over time on God's behalf. Mordecai and Esther write with all authority, the Hebrew word is literally might or power, to confirm with all the Jews in every province of the empire, this is verse 29, that they would observe the days of Purim in its appointed times. Mordecai did not receive a command from the Lord to do this. It was obviously clear to him that it should be commanded with all authority, and it was clear to the Jews that it should be obeyed as if it were a commandment from the Lord. And God himself acts as a witness to the command by recording it in his own word, in the very scriptures themselves, as words of peace and truth. It's verse 30. In doing this, God ratifies the command of Mordecai. For if Mordecai had been acting presumptuously, if he had been violating the regulative principle, the principle that all of our worship must be regulated by the pattern of God's word, then certainly God would have condemned him instead of commending him. You can't read Esther 9 and think that God is condemning Mordecai. He is clearly holding both Mordecai and Esther up for approval. He is not displeased at their adding to the Jewish festivals that he himself instituted. On the contrary, he clearly bids us to conclude that it was fitting and seemly and right for the Jews to observe Purim in its appointed times, and that Mordecai was right to institute it. Mordecai was, in fact, following the pattern of Scripture, following the regulative principle. He had observed the way in which God established festivals, and he had discerned that God's own people had come to sufficient maturity to participate in that work, to walk in his footsteps, to exercise dominion as sons of their father in heaven. Now, if this was true, even for children, as Paul calls them, for the Jews under the law who had not yet come of age in Christ and had not yet been fully trained, how much more so for the mature church under Christ, especially after 2,000 years, where our rulers are not like slaves, but like sons. Remember, in Scripture, the son is not the little boy on his father's knee. He is the grown man faithfully representing his father's interests in the world. When you read son, you should be thinking of the example of the son, Jesus. 
We are sons of God, Paul tells us. Are we not then competent to exercise dominion over time on Christ's behalf? If you think back to our investigations of the divine council, you'll recall that the sons of God in the Old Testament were the very angels that Paul describes as the elements of the world in Colossians and Galatians, the powers that were set over the nations as caretakers until the fullness of time came. Deuteronomy 4 says, Beware lest thou lift up thine eyes towards the heavens, and hast seen the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of the heavens, and thou hast been drawn and hast prostrated thyself unto them, and served them, which Yahweh thy God allotted to all the peoples under the whole heavens. Now the sun and the moon and the stars, these are the lords of time in Genesis 1, are they not? God said, Let luminaries be in the expanse of the heavens to make a separation between the day and the night. Let them be for signs and for festivals and for days and years. And let them be for luminaries in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great luminaries, the great luminary for the rule of the day, and the small luminary and the stars for the rule of the night. And God gave them in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and to rule over day and over night and to make a separation between the light and the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was an evening and there was a morning, day four. Now, there's so much in this passage when you consider the symbolic implications of light and dark, but let me just read to you another passage that you probably know very well, but haven't really thought about in terms of the heavens. You think about it in terms of heaven, but not the heavens before. But in the Greek, it actually says heavens. Remembering how the sun and the moon and the stars rule the heavens, consider what Christ says to Peter in Matthew 16. I also say to thee that thou art rock, and upon this rock I will build my congregation the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, and I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of the heavens, and whatever thou mayest bind upon the earth shall be having been bound in the heavens, and whatever thou mayest loose upon the earth shall be having been loosed in the heavens. In other words, rulership of the heavens now takes place on earth through the church. Now, I don't mean that Christ is not ruling from heaven. Obviously, he is. But the, the earth has significant part to play in how the heavens are ruled. Because we are his body here. We are making decisions that affect the heavens. Consider what he says directly before going out to preach the gospel for the first time. The people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. And to those sitting in the region and shadow of death, to them did light arise. From that time began Jesus to proclaim and to say, repent ye, for near hath come the kingdom of the heavens. So what am, I, what am I getting at? Well, let me suggest to you that from the fall of Adam until the coming of Christ, the world was in, in night, so to speak. Night and day represent something. The world was in night. And that is why Israel's liturgical calendar was a lunar calendar. The world was waiting for the coming of the great luminary to light up the world into full day. Which is also why our calendar today in the reign of Christ is a solar calendar. And when he came, he gave to his church, his body, the authority to rule on his behalf. Not just space, but time also to rule over the day. We are to order all of life according to the pattern of his law, the pattern of his wisdom. We have been raised into the heavenly places with him as new sons of God, far above the reign and dominion and authority of the original sun, moon, and stars. And we are now the ones who rule over the day and who set appointed times and festivals. 
Think of how the New Testament describes Jesus and ourselves. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, because it is God who said, out of darkness shall light shine, who did shine in our hearts for the enlightening of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 says, all ye are sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. 1 John 2, 8, again, a new command I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness does pass away and the true light doth now shine. And Daniel describes those who are wise, saying they shall shine as the brightness of the expanse, and they shall turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. God, the father of lights, promised Abraham that his seed would be like the stars. And are we not Abraham's seed? If ye are of Christ, then of Abraham ye are seed, and according to promise heirs. Yes, indeed, Christians are the luminaries, the stars of the new heavens, the morning stars of the day that is dawning in Christ as those new heavens come down to earth, as he impresses the heavenly pattern into earth through the work of his body, the church. Not everyone wants this work. And a third way that Satan has convinced Christians to abandon Christmas is by showing us how successfully he has compromised Christmas in the wider culture. Some people think, well, it's got pagan origins, so we should never have been doing it. Some people think, well, it violates the regulative principles, so we should never have been doing it. Some people think, well, Christmas was great once, but look at it now. Since the world now treats Christmas as a celebration of mammon rather than a celebration of Christ, Satan wants us thinking, you know, Christmas used to be about Christ, but it isn't anymore. Now it's about mammon. That's just what it is now. There's nothing we can do about it. We just have to abandon it. Back to the pagans. It's a lost cause. Well, hopefully you can see by now, in light of what I've just said about dominion over time, what utter foolishness this is. It is a functional denial of the Great Commission and the Lordship of Christ that that Great Commission is based on. It is really to say, rather than discipling our nation and taking every thought captive to obey Christ, we will let the nation disciple us. Rather than acting as timekeepers on behalf of the Lord of time, we will opt out. The pagans can have time. Even worse, often... When that happens, because you cannot live timelessly, you cannot live without routines and rituals and regular liturgical practices, even if you don't think of them as such, what you end up doing is accepting the times and the seasons that the pagans make up while rejecting the ones that the church did. You don't go to work on Anzac Day or Labor Day, or really, but Christmas shouldn't exist, right? So who do you think is really in charge of time then? Who is the Lord of time to such a person? Obviously not Christ, because the pagans are dictating the calendar. I think not. Is the arm of the Lord suddenly shortened? You think God can take the entire calendar from the pagans and establish Christmas against all their festivals, but he lacks the power to bring us back to the true observance of it? I don't. The only reason that Christmas remains a festival to mammon is because churches are so weak at asserting the lordship of Christ over time and teaching the people to do the same. So if that is what we are supposed to be doing, how do we do it? 
We do not want to be weak. We want to be establishing a good Christmas culture, a good culture of liturgical calendars in general. But we've covered a lot of quite dense ground, so I want to wrap up here to give your brains a chance to at least hold on to some of it and then return to this topic next week from a more practical angle. Because as I say, if the church is authorized to order time by establishing festivals as wisdom guides her, then those festivals need to have a particular form. They have to be celebrated a certain way. You can't actually celebrate Christmas if you don't know what to do on Christmas, right? That's exactly where a lot of Christians go off the rails because they think celebrating Christmas means celebrating mammon. They correctly recognize some of the current liturgical forms of the Christmas festival are not so good. And so they want to avoid those, and that leads them to avoid Christmas itself. But that is not the path of wisdom. We should rather be asking, what should we be doing for Christmas? What should we avoid? What should we celebrate? And what's kind of like, hmm, some of that's bad and some of it's good. Let's reform it. Obviously, celebrating the birth of Christ is good, but we don't have to just accept all the other stuff that comes along with it these days, so we should investigate it. We should be asking, what about Santa? What about Christmas trees? What about presents? What about nativity scenes? What is good? What is bad? What would the Lord Jesus have us do to start establishing a truly Christian culture of Christmas at Redwood? So that is what I want to ask next time.